Amen. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Hello. Hello. I want to uh, I want to ask something of you up front here. Uh, I want to ask you to join me in a little thought experiment. This is like a little scenario I'm going to paint for you. I want you to just just go with me. Just go with me through this and. Uh, but I want you to particularly pay attention to sort of the feelings or emotions that might come up in you as we are going through this. So in this scenario, let's say that you have been charged with a crime and you are awaiting trial. It doesn't really matter what the crime is. You can just, just pick your favorite crime. It's fine. Uh, take a moment to think about it. Do you have something in mind? Now turn to your neighbor. Tell them what your favorite crime is. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Some of you, some of you look like a little eager to maybe uh, just get some fresh ideas from your neighbor or whatever. Welcome to church. So in this scenario, you, are, uh, you have been charged with a crime, and in this particular case, you uh, just did not do what they say you did. You are totally innocent in this case. But for some reason, people don't believe you. For the record... I believe you. I, I know a lot of you. I'm happy to believe in your innocence. You did just admit that you have a favorite crime, which is a little bit concerning to me. I wouldn't say that to the judge, but let's assume for the moment that you are innocent in this scenario. And yet, the prosecutor just sort of seems to be totally abusing their power, pursuing you for no reason. The judge even seems to kind of hate you, and so you are really worried that you are about to be convicted. So on the day of the trial, you're, you're sitting in the hallway outside the courtroom, just like sick to your stomach, just nervous. If it's me, I am like crying out to God for mercy, for intervention. And imagine as you're sitting there, you see a doorway open down the hall, and out comes the judge in your case. And she's being followed by two police officers, and you suddenly realize, actually, she's in handcuffs, and the cops are arresting her. Now how do you feel? Maybe you're just kind of in shock, probably, not, not knowing what to make of this. Maybe you feel like potentially you see God's hand at work here. This wasn't like exactly what I was praying for, but maybe this is good news. Maybe this is the vindication that you were asking for. Maybe you even find yourself starting to praise, like, yes, Lord, make a way for me towards freedom. So you're still trying to figure this out when your phone rings. It's your lawyer. And she says, I, I don't know what's going on, but the FBI just raided the district attorney's office. The prosecutor in your case is in custody. The trial's going to have to be postponed. So now how do you feel? Probably still a little bit in shock, but, but maybe now you really feel like God must be doing something here. I mean, if it's me, honestly... I could be a little petty. I'm like, get him, God. Get him. Let justice roll down. <laughs> Imagine then as you're trying to process this, people are now passing by you in the hall, kind of frantic, kind of urgent. They look like official sorts of people, but they seem like really distressed. You overhear them saying that the president has just announced that the FBI has been declared a criminal organization and has been disbanded effective immediately. Now how do you feel? 
for me, it's a little bit like, uh, huh. Like, it's, it's kind of unsettling, right? I was asking for justice in my case. I, I wasn't really expecting it to involve, like, quite so many people. I wasn't expecting it to, to go right to the top. Is this good news for me? I don't even know what this has to do with me anymore. Now you see people down the hall, they're gathered around this television screen. There's this breaking news headline. The president has disbanded the Justice Department and then resigned. The vice president resigned. Something is happening inside the Capitol building. The doors are all locked. Nobody is coming in or out. The Supreme Court justices failed to show up for work this morning and are missing. Now how do you feel? I think I'm probably, I'd say I'm moving from eagerness to confusion to some anxiety here at this point. It's also a little bit like, wait, did I do this? <laughs> like, did my prayers do this? All I wanted was to be found innocent. I didn't need like the whole structure of law and government to come crashing down. I'm, I'm glad, Lord, that you intervened. Maybe at some point you could have just like stopped intervening though. Maybe you, you just kind of could have left some things alone. We're in the, the last week of this series on allegiance, and for me, I've kind of moved through some of these feelings as we have progressed through the series for myself. In the first week, Josh was telling us about how allegiance to God would ask us to give up other false idols, and at that point, it's all eagerness. It's like, yes, that's a, that's a great message. I know so many people that need to hear that. I am sharing this talk with everybody. Then Matt came along, and he told us that allegiance to God would break apart some of our categories. Maybe some of our, even our political categories. Red, blue, left, right. I can't just expect God to join my team to defeat my enemies. God is doing a bigger thing that is for me and is also for my enemies. And it's like, okay, a little confusion. I'm struggling a little bit here with that. Because in my case, at least, my enemies seem like really awful people. But something about that word rings true. It's a little countercultural, but I'm willing to trust you here, God. Then Shirley came, comes along to tell, you, tell us that, the, the allegiance, that allegiance to God might co also cost us materially, financially. It might ask us to give generously, even, even when we believe we have nothing left to give. And this is, like, this is where I'm like, well, just... Let's slow down for a second. Now, I'm not saying you're wrong, Lord. I am, I'm trying to live by faith, so I'm willing to hear you out. But let's really think this thing through. Like, I get why it might be good in general for people to give their resources to you. But is this good for me? You know what I'm saying? Like, in my situation, I'm moving some things between the checking and the savings. I just recently learned how retirement works. Like, just give me a minute, God, while I get this 401k started. Today, though, we are moving even further into that confusion. We are engaging God at a point where we might start to think that allegiance cuts so deeply that we are tempted to, to say, actually, Lord, I kind of wish you had just left some things alone here. I kind of wish you would hold back. We're talking today about a full allegiance of our whole hearts to God. What scripture tells us is that there is actually nothing, no matter how important to us, no matter how sacred, that we can hold above our allegiance to God. 
And the place where people in the, in the biblical story feel the most tested by that truth is the same point where many of us feel tested. It's at the point where God would ask us to give him more allegiance than we give even to our own families, to our own parents, to our spouses, to our children. In some famous words of Jesus, words that, that we kind of tend to skim through because they, they can be so unsettling. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now how do you feel? These are words that that still kind of freak me out. What if this is real? Can we really contemplate that? Can, can we really go that far with God? Let's pray together as we get started. Lord, we, we want to follow you. We want you to be the most important thing in our lives. And also, we get freaked out. So come, Holy Spirit, let help us just to see you as you are, as the one who always gives more than he asks. In Jesus' name. So we're going to spend the rest of our time today in a complicated uh, and beautiful story from Scripture. I think it's, it's complicated because it's very human. It's very real. It's very earthly. It has a lot of drama and betrayal. It's also a beautiful story. I think it's probably the, the Bible's greatest love story. It's about a prince named Jonathan who is the son of King Saul. And David, who is not technically a prince at the beginning of the story, but he is the one whom God has chosen to become king after Saul. David, you remember, was, he was just a young shepherd who became famous in Israel after he defeated the supposedly unbeatable Goliath in battle. And after that battle, King Saul asks this young shepherd, basically, who are you? And David says, well, I'm David. And almost instantly, it seems, this happens. When David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. As a result, Saul set him over the army, and all the people, even the servants of Saul, approved. There is something sort of inseparable in the end about love and then a covenant relationship, which is like an eternal commitment, this unbreakable bond. If you, you have love, then your heart is sort of always seeking to make it into a covenant and, and vice versa. Maybe this actually seems like a little bit hasty. Maybe you wouldn't advise Jonathan to move quite this quickly. But Jonathan falls in love with David and very quickly makes a deep commitment to him. And the sign of the covenant commitment in this case is that Jonathan shares all of his royal possessions with David. 
And it's, it's worth noticing that Saul also seems to have this real deep affection for David and treats David like a son, but it's, it's not a love that necessarily leads to any kind of covenant. It is probably easier in some ways to, to kind of do it this way, to have the love first and then to form a covenant. Sometimes that's how it feels with our families. They are loving. They are secure. We are grateful for, for caring families. And that feels like then the basis for the covenant that our hearts form with them. Our families have, have loved us so much, we want to commit to loving them in return. But sometimes the, the opposite feels true of families. We haven't always experienced them as warm and loving. But we nonetheless feel like we have a kind of covenant commitment to them. We, we are bound to them. We, we use words like kinship or blood or heritage to try and make sense of it all. For reasons that, that we can't totally explain, we, we find ourselves in a covenant with our families, even if they haven't loved us well. And then we sort of set off on this lifelong journey to find that love that goes along with that covenant. We might even really be deeply committed on some soul level to an absent father or an abusive mother. And part of our commitment is that we then spend a long time trying to find their love for us and figure out how to love them. You either start with the love or you start with the covenant, but either way, your heart sort of seeks out what is missing. So we often tell ourselves then that, that family is or ought to be our deepest allegiance. We say things like, family is everything. Never turn your back on family. Whatever else you do wrong in life, just don't give up on family. We feel this so deeply. We even almost find it kind of justifiable when people do terrible things and say that they had to do it for the sake of their family. How could that not be like an unbreakable allegiance? Isn't it more important even than whatever people say is right and wrong? Of course, if we, if we really think about it, there are all sorts of other allegiances and other agendas that sometimes come between us and our families. We, we argue with them, we yell at them, we tune them out, we work long hours and only see them for a few minutes at bedtime, we move far away and visit them only once a year, we forget to call our families, we, we judge the life decisions that they make, we get frustrated when they ask us for a loan, we forget their birthdays, we're ashamed of what they post on Facebook. We go to therapy to work out all of the ways we feel at odds with our family. So what does this allegiance mean then? If we also sometimes reject them, or we are sometimes abandoned by them, when sometimes we even hate them. I think our real sense of allegiance to our families is that they give us an identity. They give us at least a little foundation on which to understand ourselves. Without a family, it can feel like we just don't know who we are or where we fit in the world. And so the real source of our allegiance to our families is that they seem at least to teach us who we are, whether we like it or not, whether they do it well or not. Family is probably not the only thing in your life that you feel a deep allegiance to because it is a source of your identity. Take a moment to, to think about it. What are, what are some things in your life that you say to yourself, without this, I'm not sure I would know who I am anymore. 
could be your name, or a story about your origin, or a birthplace, or something distinct about your class or your generation. It could be your nationality or ethnicity. It could even be a political belief that you hold. It could even be your vocation. Like, if I didn't have my career, I, don't, I wouldn't even know what my purpose is. When we have deep allegiances like this in our lives, it's very tempting to begin thinking of them on their own as sacred. They must be holy because they matter so much to us. They make life feel meaningful. We are tempted to think that our deepest allegiances are divinely ordered until something happens that makes it seem like God is at odds with our deepest allegiances. So I'm, I'm going to kind of skim through some of Jonathan and, and David's story. I would encourage you to go back and read more of it in 1 Samuel 19 and 20. But for the sake of time, let me catch you up on the story. So remember, everybody lo loves David. He's the war hero. But his popularity now makes King Saul very jealous. So jealous that King Saul starts to think about having David murdered. Jonathan, the prince intercedes once, convinces his father that it would be wrong to kill David. And King Saul then swears that he won't, except then, like, pretty much right away, King Saul breaks his promise and then actually tries to have David killed. And this time it's the intervention of David's wife, Michal, that, that saves David, and, and we won't dwell on it much here, but Michal is also Saul's daughter. So yes, over the course of this story, David has now become Saul's son-in-law, so these family dynamics are like as messy as they can possibly get. So after David escapes Saul's murder attempt, David goes back to Jonathan and is like, I, hey man, I think your dad wants to kill me. And Jonathan is like, no, 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 no. That can't be true. That can't be true. I mean, yeah, my dad was talking a lot about killing you, but that was like weeks ago. We, we talked it out. And David's like, I don't know, man. It seems like he really wants me dead. And Jonathan then renews his covenant with David, but now there's this sort of interesting edginess to it. If my father intends to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away so that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the faithful love of the Lord. But if I die, never cut off your faithful love from my house, even if the Lord were to cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Thus Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord seek out the enemies of David. Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own life. Something is stirring in Jonathan that perhaps the God-honoring thing to do here is now to betray his father. King Saul just seems like plainly wrong here. He's just being petty and jealous and obsessed with keeping his throne. And so in this renewed covenant, Jonathan says some things that feel like a real choice he is making now to ally himself to David. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. It's a little unclear if this means like let the presence, let the Lord's presence cover you and my father or if it means like let the anointing that was once on my father now transfer over to you. 
And then there's this, may the Lord seek out the enemies of David, which is a pretty spicy thing to say if your own father seems to be one of David's enemies. It's an indication of how strongly Jonathan feels about this. If it's God's desire that David should be the next king of Israel, and if my father opposes him, then I guess my father opposes God, and maybe that should affect how I feel about my father. When we run into to questions that test our allegiances at these, this deepest level, we often feel really torn, deeply torn. At one point in my life, I, uh, I moved away to South Africa for a number of years, and it was very hard on my family. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't rejecting them. They hadn't done anything wrong. But I, my sense of God's call on my life was leading me to a place where it was very hard to stay connected with my family. And they felt that cost. And I felt so torn between wanting to follow God's leading and also wanting to love my family by making them happy. I talk with a lot of people these days who, who feel torn in a similar sort of way as they are making life decisions, especially around career things. Maybe it's not distance that always separates us from family. Maybe it's a question of whether like, I should follow my passion and dreams or take like, a, the very sensible job that makes really good money. Often money is also really about family. Should I pursue what I want in life or do I have an obligation to provide for my family even if I'm stuck in a job that I don't like? It's not even always about sort of generational senses of obligation. Maybe, maybe your spouse or partner asks you to, to stop hanging out with an old friend who has been a bad influence on you. Maybe a, a friend that you have starts to pursue you romantically and you're not interested and you feel really torn between an allegiance to what your heart really wants and also a deep desire to keep this friendship. In all of these really difficult choices, we feel so torn because it feels like we are choosing between different versions of ourselves. I feel like God has made me to be, let's say, a professional musician. But I also feel like God has given me a heart to provide for people. And those seem like two things that are not just things that I want, they seem to almost be truths about who I am, and that makes the decision so hard. What's, what's the right thing to do here? It's, it can take a long time to even choose. I, I can't imagine being myself if I don't pursue a dream. And I also can't imagine becoming the kind of person who others can't depend on, even financially. I don't, I don't want to become someone who chooses my own comfort over God's will for me but I also don't want to become the kind of person who just kind of makes rash decisions that are costly for the people that I care the most about. And now we are actually like really getting down to the level of our deepest allegiances. It's not in the end actually to any particular sort of team or side, but, but to this vision that we have of who we want to become. It's not actually about whether, for instance, like art is objectively better than money. It's about whether I will eventually have all the things that I hope for, all the things that I long to be true of me. 
whether I will get it right in the end, whether I will finally end up becoming a person who feels less scattered and confused and selfish than I often feel. That's the deep allegiance of our hearts, hoping for our own wholeness. So Jonathan feels torn in two, and he comes up with kind of an, ing an ingenious plan to kind of try and have it both ways. He's going to try to find out if King Saul really wants David dead. And he's also going to try and do it in a way so that King Saul doesn't know what he's up to so that he can kind of preserve both relationships at the same time. So a lot of chapter 20 in 1 Samuel is about the, the details of this plan. Basically, it involves a lie that Jonathan tells his father to see how his father will react. Jonathan discovers that Saul does indeed want to kill David. But at the same time, Saul actually figures out the play, figures out that Jonathan is trying to play him, and he gets super mad and throws a spear at Jonathan. He misses, but I mean, he, he could have just killed his son. And so Jonathan leaves the room so angry, both because he is just sad, but also, this is interesting, because his father had disgraced him. Other translations describe Jonathan as upset about his father's shameful behavior. Now, I understand why Jonathan is sad and angry, but what exactly does shame and disgrace have to do with it? Jonathan, like a lot of us, is, still hopes on some level that he won't even have to choose. Like, what I really want, what I'm really hoping for, is for my father to just come to his senses and do the right thing, and then I won't have to choose between David and Saul. And he tries to kind of convince Saul of this in chapter 19. He fails. And then it seems like the next best thing is to trick Saul into telling the truth. So at least David will be safe. Saul won't be guilty of murder. And Jonathan's relationship to his father will, will remain intact. But that also fails. David is safe. But now Saul is so furious at Jonathan and considers him a traitor. If we feel a tension between these deep allegiances in our hearts, let's say things, am ambitions or longings or things that God is calling us to that seem to be his will and also our family's desire for us, it always seems first like the best thing that we could possibly hope for is to just win our family's approval. If only they could also understand God's will for me, then we could just all be on the same page. And if that doesn't work, it's then tempting to resolve this tension by just saying, well, I guess my family is like the villain of this story. Like they, they rejected God. They rejected God's will for me and my life. And so do I have to reject them? And that's in a sense how I understand Jonathan's sense of shame. Like I can't believe my dad is the bad guy in this story. Like, I, I can't believe I'm stuck with this egomaniac as my father. What's extra difficult is that Jonathan's father is not just his father, but also his king. And in faithfulness to God, both Jonathan and later David have a strong sense that that matters. No matter how badly Saul acts, he is, while he remains alive, he is God's appointed leader of Israel. So what does it mean to be a son to the bad guy? What does it mean to be a good citizen under an evil king? 
Why not just like reject your bad father or try to overthrow your evil king? But Jonathan, out of some sense of what God might be doing in Saul's anointing, isn't prepared to do either of those things. And so he remains this loyal son and this loyal subject, but he doesn't, he doesn't have to be happy about it. And so you might be thinking, well, where do we get to the part where we just say, like, what Jonathan should have done here? Like, what was the choice that he should have made? And that's often how we think of our lives as, as a sort of series of tests we are facing that require us to prove that we are good and faithful people who know how to make the right choice. That's part of why we feel so torn in these, these big decisions, because we, we don't know what to do, but one of these options has to be like the right one and the other the wrong one. Isn't that why God would allow me to face like such an impossible question to, to put me to the test? But what if sin is not something you fall into if you choose wrongly? What if sin is the power at work in this broken world that temporarily prevents God's love from being whole? You love your family, and while there might be some woundedness in all of that, there is also something really good, something of the Lord, something a gift that you have been given there. You also have an ambition to serve God, and while there might be some woundedness in that, there is also something really good, a gift that God has given you. The real work of sin, the real work that sin has done, is to shatter the world in such a way that you are forced to choose even between good things. Between things that ought to really be together, that ought to be one, that ought to be reconciled. You love your partner and you love your friend, but they hate each other and they want you to choose between them. You love the gift that God has given you as a musician, and you want to also care for your family, but the world just doesn't feel like it's organized in such a way that you can trust that your family will be provided for unless you submit to a job that you really don't like, that isn't your calling. There is, and maybe as a different kind of example, there is something beautiful about the wide variety of Christians in God's kingdom. But do you, do you really think that God is happy that this diversity is also divided into different churches? These churches argue with each other, they slander each other, they sometimes hate each other, they have sometimes even tried to murder each other. I mean, talk about shameful behavior. Talk about bringing disgrace to God. God lives with Jonathan's tension every day watching groups of people that he loves equally killing each other rather than being reconciled as he intended. Here's the hardest part. Even, when the, even though the cho choice itself is broken, sometimes we still have to choose. We can't be in two places at once. We can't always do two things at once. We can't force two people to be reconciled. And so Jonathan makes a choice. He decides to remain in service to his anointed king and his father, Saul. He chooses that instead of, like, running off to be with David. And that leads to this incredibly poignant scene as Jonathan and David are, are saying their final goodbyes. David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan, 
three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Jonathan and David leave us with a, a final version of their covenant, of this commitment to love one another. That even if they, they can't be together, they will trust that the one Lord will remain over both of their stories. That the, that the Lord will one day even reconcile their families, that will, God will unite their descendants. If Jonathan makes a, a right choice in this, uh, in this story, it's not because he was like right to betray Saul or, or right even then to remain with Saul. That's not necessarily better or worse than going with David. The right choice he makes is to place his hope in God as the one who is able to reconcile and unite even our love of many different good things. Jonathan is trusting in God as the one who will bring his family together with David's family, together then with the whole Israelite nation, together then with God's entire redemptive plan. He could have believed all that and hoped all that and gone to be with David. But he decided to remain with his father. His heart allegiance to God didn't necessarily, in this case, tell him what to choose. If anything, maybe it gave him some freedom to choose, knowing that he wasn't going to make the perfect choice, but that he would have to commit to trust in the big story of God bringing together a shattered world. And so once Jonathan chooses Saul, he also, in a way, in a certain, at least from the perspective of the biblical narrative, he sort of chooses anonymity. We don't hear anything more about Jonathan except for this mention that he ends up following his father into battle and dies along with his father when the battle is lost. But David remembers their covenant and he himself is later remembered as a man with his own heart allegiance to God and perhaps that was actually Jonathan's legacy in him. David continues to hope in the final reconciling work of God and so he writes this song that gets handed down in Jonathan's memory, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. We will also have to make choices, even when it seems like there are no good choices. We will wonder about ourselves as we make them. Does this choice mean I am becoming a different person? Do I not know what to do in this case because I'm just a bad person? Should I maybe just learn to embrace that about myself? Be the villain in this story. Or are the other people, let's say my family or the people that I feel like I am choosing against, are they actually the bad people? 
Am I actually a better, superior kind of person because I made this choice? But a heart allegiance to God means that our identity is not an open question. It is not merely something that is up for grabs every time we face one of these decisions. It is already fixed for us in God's love. We are also waiting for God to show us the truth about ourselves that God already knows. Just as we are waiting on God to reconcile the world, to bring together the things that we love. What we need for now is to live with a deep trust in his love, in his goodness, in his power to restore the world. Who you are is not something that has not already been spoken about, has not already been established in what God says about you. What if, as Shirley was pointing out for us last week, what if we are God's beloved children before we are anything else? I want to invite the, uh, the worship team to come up. As they, as they come up, I want to leave you with just a couple kind of concrete invitations. So how do we, how do we challenge our hearts to be allied to God, even if that... That means that we don't always know what to choose. Well, first, I think we have to develop a habit of gratitude. Thank God all the time. Thank God for being God. Thank God for loving us. Thank God that he is good. Thank God that he made us. Thank God that we love good things. Thank God for what is worth loving in the allegiances we already have. There is already goodness in the things that give you identity, in your family, in your ethnicity, in your passions, in your calling, even in your sense of duty and obligation. The goodness in all of these very different things all belongs to God. It feels hard for us in this life to kind of hold it all together sometimes, but give thanks to God that you won't have to be the one who holds it all together. He will make it make sense. He will reconcile the parts of you that feel unreconcilable. In the meantime, his love for you is more than enough. Second, this is the reason why I think we talk so often about lament at ECV. Lament is a habit we take on of naming deep sadness that we feel, a deep sadness about the world that the fact that the world is not yet what it will be. We are waiting, we are aching along with all of creation, along even with God himself, waiting for all things to be brought together in peace and in unity. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite uh, someone forward, will we'll come forward to share a few more words with us. Lord, at the places where we, where we find ourselves torn, where we most desperately want to be reconciled to ourselves, to our choices, to the world around us, Lord, meet us there now. Holy Spirit, come and be the gift of your grace, your goodness, your healing, your promises.
In Jesus' name we pray.